This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 5th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Ed Zoller is coming to you from Phoenix, and we're going to talk about what happened this week in federal taxes. And to get started, we're going to be talking about a IRS issuing the first guidance on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This dealing with the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements that allow taxpayers to get a higher tax benefit if they comply with those requirements for a number of the provisions that were added as part of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. As well, we're going to talk about a case where this taxpayers did just about everything wrong. This case is instructive for all the ways the taxpayers manage to be have their loss disallowed for their partnership and not just for the obvious problem that they weren't real estate professionals and therefore it was by definition passive, but we have a whole lot of other ways they managed to destroy it because of how they decided to structure their setup. That was kind of an interesting case, so we'll take a look at that case as well. This week I had been on the road uh, and had a unscheduled uh, two-day stop in Minneapolis uh, based upon Duve. You might have heard there was a rather large storm that hit Minneapolis and dropped about eight and a half inches of snow on the airport on Tuesday. Well, unfortunately, I was uh, changing planes in Minneapolis this week for a trip to the East Coast and essentially arrived before the storm. But my plane that was going to go ahead and take me out to Connecticut uh, ended up uh, not leaving until after the storm had arrived. And by the time everything was said and done, that flight never went to Connecticut. And so by the end of the day, I was in Minneapolis for a while, uh, doing some work there, coming back to Phoenix, able to do a Zoom into Connecticut. But it was kind of interesting running that way. So been an interesting week, so been doing a few things. But this week, I'm back here in Phoenix, so I did make it back. And I have only one more trip scheduled for the year to do something for a firm later this week where I get on the road. Uh, but otherwise, everything this week is local here in Phoenix. So I will be looking at cameras a lot more, just like I have been doing for the past couple of years via Zoom or other mechanisms. So yeah, it's that week. Well, let's get a look at this week then. And let's start with Notice 202261. This was released on November the 29th of this week. Essentially, the Tuesday I was getting stuck was the day that this came out. But this was the first IRS guidance on provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act passed back in August. Now, you should be aware the IRS put out a lot of requests for comments and information related to items that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Remember, a lot of these items take effect beginning January 1st of 2023. And this particular one has a special issue because until this guidance gets out, everybody qualifies for the higher rate or the higher benefits, let's say the better benefits for a lot of the credits until we get these rules out. And so there's a 60-day counting period. And so that's why not surprise, there's a 60-day period after these are published while you can still get your project started and not need to comply with these rules in order to qualify for your higher benefit. Now, what this involves is, as I said, a whole number of provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act were involved in this. I mean, there are, you know, from the uh, refueling, uh, various other credits there, there's just a ton involved here that 
basically, if you comply with pay the prevailing wage and make use of what's going to be in this case apprentices for a proper portion of the work, that you qualify for a much higher credit. For instance, we talk about the issues involving the qualified refueling property. The credit goes for commercial enterprises from 6% of the expenses incurred to 30%. So obviously, we kind of want to know how this works to see what it is, right? So the first requirement is what is the requirement if you're going to meet the prevailing wage requirements found in these various sections. And you'll see this, the, all the sections involved are listed in the article in the materials that we have, plus the article on the website that also has the same information regarding that. Generally, a taxpayer satisfies prevailing wage requirement with respect to any labor, mechanic, employed construction, alteration or repair facility, property, project, or equipment by the taxpayer or any contractor or subcontractor of the taxpayer. So basically, everybody working on the project has to meet this prevailing wage requirement. That means every employee of every contractor you've got has got to meet this. Now, we get to the apprenticeship rules, you'll discover that if they don't employ more than four people, then that contractor gets out of the apprenticeship rules, but in this case, you don't get out even if it's just one person. You know, you have to pay the prevailing wage. And the other catch, which this makes very clear, is that the taxpayer has to maintain and preserve sufficient records, including books and accounts or records for work performed by the contractors or subcontractors of the taxpayer, to establish that such laborers and mechanics were paid wages not less than such prevailing wage rates in accordance with the general record-keeping requirements under the code. So in essence, expect you to have to have detailed information about the employees that worked on the project for each contractor and proof that they were paid a wage at least equal to the prevailing wage. Now, the actual prevailing wage guidance that we got here is generally Department of Labor publishes on the website www.sam.gov a prevailing weight termination for the geographical area and the types or types of construction applicable to the facility. That includes all labor classifications for the construction, alteration or repair work that will be done by laborers and mechanics. And that wage determination contains the prevailing wage for the laborers and mechanics to perform work on the facility as most recently determined by the Secretary of Labor in accordance with, love this, subchapter 4 of chapter 31 of Title 40 of the United States Code that's identified in section 45B7A of the IRC. So that, that's the background. Now, on the, in some cases, you won't find the particular type of labor being done or classification. There'll be a limited circumstances where there's not a prevailing wage established. And if that's true, then basically the Secretary of Labor, right, we're going to essentially have to contact the Secretary of Labor in accordance with the rules they have uh, to come up with that prevailing wage. And they explain to you in the guide how you have to do this, and especially the contact email address you have to make contact to get that prevailing wage rate for that thing that doesn't otherwise fit the table, right? So that's going to be involved. And as well, they do make clear that prevailing wages for apprentices, apprentices, I'll get that right, uh, through a registered apprenticeship program may be less than the corresponding prevailing rate for journey workers, so there may be a difference involved with this, right? So that's going to be the background. 
They also have definitions of the various key words here, like what it means to employ somebody, what it means for wage and wages, what's a labor mechanic, what's construction, alteration, or repair, and the prevailing wage, prevailing wage determination. Uh, the notice also contains a series of three examples about applying this rule. Bottom line, you need to know the prevailing wage for every laborer or, you know, or mechanic that is working on the project for every contractor. And you have to make sure and get sufficient records to show that that contractor paid the prevailing wage, wage, wage I'll get that out, right, to those particular individuals. Now, that does not necessarily mean you have to hire somebody who is a union shop, but it does mean that the wages have to be at that level. And while various of these uh, sections may provide fixes, generally, if you have to try to fix later, you're always going to pay, going to have to pay those people the shortfall, whatever they were paid below the prevailing wage, and you have to turn around and also then pay various fines. So generally, if you want to get that higher benefit, uh, you're going to have to figure out, you know, what these rate wages are and make sure they're paid or do the math. Is the prevailing wage payment going to cost you more than the higher benefit? In which case, then maybe you decide I'll take 6% instead of 30, let's say for qualified refueling property. And that'll be my choice. And therefore, I won't worry about prevailing wage and I don't need to deal with all this other record keeping. But if that's not the case, prevailing wage is not, you know, is going to be not so much more that it's going to cost you more than the credit, then you may very well want to make sure that, you know, the contractors, if need be, give people a wage boost, uh, you know, while they're working on your project to make sure that this comes through. Now, the other next, it comes up and gives us guidance on the apprenticeship uh, rules. Again, in most of these cases, they require you to have a certain percentage of work, percentage of the hours be done by qualified apprentices from a qualified apprentice program. Now, in order to meet this requirements, there are going to be three tests. You must satisfy the apprenticeship labor hour requirements and subject to any applicable apprenticeship ratio requirements. And those are the requirements under the code sections or the credits in question for what percentage of the hour or what amount of the work or what amount of the workforce must be apprentices, right? Must be done by apprentices or must consist of apprentices, you know, so those who have apprenticeships. So you're going to have to understand that from a qualified apprentice program. You also have to satisfy the apprentice participation requirements. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is going to require that each taxpayer, contractor, subcontractor who employs four more individuals to perform construction, alteration, or repair work with respect to construction of such a facility must employ one or more qualified apprentices to perform such work. So you have to make sure, you know, if you're going to have, and again, you're going to need the data, that's going to be your problem as always in this case, to prove that you have, you know, that people have met that requirement. Now, there is a special exception that applies here called the good faith effort exception. And you'll be considered to have made a good faith effort in requesting qualified appraisers if the taxpayer requests the appraisers from registered apprenticeship program in accordance with usual and customary business practice for a registered apprenticeship program in a particular industry. And you have records that you made that request and that it was denied because they couldn't find anybody to fulfill it, right? Or they didn't respond to a request, right? That was made timely. So 
if you're going to go down the good faith line and say, well, you know, we tried to, but we just couldn't get these apprentices in here, uh, you need to document that. And also be aware that the way the law is worded, you can't just say they didn't give you a competent apprentice. You're going to probably have to be able to say they didn't give you an apprentice. They didn't send anybody over because that's going to be the problem because it doesn't appear that you have any right to reject. If you're rejecting the apprentice, then you're going to fail this requirement. So be aware of that. They have a similar set of definitions for this section and this part of the notice for all of these key issues as to who's involved, what it is, along with a single example of how this would work. They next have, the next part of this talks about when you're determined to have beginning of construction. And what they really do here is, for the most part, they go back to a test found under notice 2013-29 for the physical work test in the 5% safe harbor. If you satisfy either test, you will have begun construction. And you also have to meet the continuity requirements, right? Uh, for purposes of certain credits, four credits have to be done. And that's based on facts and circumstances. Now, you know, physical work test, construction facility begins when the physical work of a significant nature begins, provided the taxpayer maintains a continuous program of construction. Uh, it looks at the nature of the work performed, not the amount or cost. So if you that would seem to make the most sense that you have real. You can't just kind of do something or just do something high cost, but it's not significant. You've got to do that. The second test is called the 5% test. And that is if you pay or incur, uh, you know, 5% or more of the total cost of facility and thereafter you make continuous efforts to advance or completion. In this case, all costs are considered. So if you're not going to satisfy, you could use the 5% safe harbor saying once 5% of those costs are in, as long as we don't, you know, stop building the project, we have the continuity, uh, we're going to be fine. That'll be the idea for when it starts. And the starting date's important because in many cases, the starting date determines what percentages you have to meet. So that'll be key. Now, they also reference the special materials for section 179D. And generally, they'll say that for 179D rules, under this case with the revisions, installation has begun if the taxpayer generally, generally requires, satisfies principles similar to those two tests, the physical work and the 5% safe harbor. And again, facts and circumstances, though, ultimately will be determinative of whether you begun installation. And, you know, the other catches is the final thing they talk about in this section is remember that 60 day period, right? For many of these, if you begin construction, so construction actually begins before the 60 days after this, after guidance is issued, then you effectively get to take the higher credit. Even if you don't meet these requirements, you get the higher credit or higher benefit. Uh, that clock is running now. So this is why beginning of construction could be crucial. Uh, if your construction can be, can, can be shown to have begun before January 30 of 2023, you'll be within the 60-day period after guidance was issued. So be aware that that could be crucial. Otherwise, beginning of construction primarily will impact some percentages phase in over a couple of years. So then it becomes, then we have, the beginning date becomes important for other reasons. But if you're going to have a project that's not going to meet these two tests, you know, you don't intend to meet them, but you want the higher credit, then you're racing to get this thing started before the end of January.
Now, in some parts of the country, like Phoenix, where the weather is not going to be that big a problem in the winter, in fact, that's generally when we would prefer to do a lot of projects that are outdoors of any sort, um, you know, it may be not that big a deal to get it going if you can just find people. Uh, in other parts of the country, like where I was just at, you know, where I got stuck in Minneapolis, it's not, not the best weather for a lot of heavy construction projects. It may be more difficult to get things started and to stay continuously operating in that area. So that could be a little more interesting time period. But January 30th is the date we're aiming for then. So after that date, you have to meet this notice if you want to get the uh, more generous tax benefits in a these various provisions listed in the notice under the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The next, the second thing we're going to look at this week is a case called Dunn versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-112. This case also came down on November 29th. Now, this case is interesting, not so much because the taxpayer ends up losing their ability to claim the losses. That's not really something that unusual. Whenever we see real estate professional cases with taxpayers who have full-time employment elsewhere, they tend to lose. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast, right? It's really tough to be a real estate professional uh, if you actually have full-time jobs elsewhere. But in this case, that wasn't the sole reason why they lost it. And I can't recall a court case in recent memory where the court has gone ahead after having already found, made a finding that would have denied the entire deduction, kept going and listed every way that they could deny the entire deduction. So we have a whole series of problems they're going to note here. And only the first couple only partially would reduce the deductible loss. Uh, all the others totally kill it. So let's talk about how these taxpayers, in essence, what did they do? And my impression is the court went to this length because I think the court got the idea that they had attempted to kind of disguise it. I don't know. It's one of those things. There's, there's some other story here about why the court felt the need to just hammer so hard on this. They are, you know, they weren't represented by counsel in this case. And so it doesn't seem likely they're going to go to the Court of Appeals. And even if they did, it doesn't seem likely the Court of Appeals is going to overturn any of this. So it wasn't really that case where a judge was just trying to, you know, ensure that if it got to the Court of Appeals, that they had all kinds of backstops that, that would enable them to, you know, not have to worry about the Court of Appeals overturning their decision and sending it back to rule on something else. So if you remember going way back to the early 2000s, the second Strangey decision, that this case kind of reads like that, where the tax court just goes down and keeps hammering on. It, blow, you know, it blows up for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. I mean, all these different reasons uh, to send the case back to the court, because there I think there was concern when it went back to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the tax court had had a number of things that had issues with the Fifth Circuit on family and partnerships, and they were afraid that when it went back, they were going to, you know, overturn on some basis. So Judge Cohen just basically gave them every option about why they'd blow it. And I'd say Strangey was definitely a bad facts case. Uh, and, you know, the Fifth Circuit went along, but they only went along with one and didn't really rule on all the other ways that, uh, that Judge Cohen had said they would have lost because that, that got a little bit involved. So let's talk about what was actually going on here. Okay, these taxpayers formed a formed a partnership, Magnet Development LLC. LLC would be taxed as a partnership, right? 
And that was going to handle their investments in the real estate they had. Now, the only two owners of the LLC were the husband and wife. So basically, Heather and Edison Dunn were the only owners of the LLC. Now, this LLC purchased a 21-unit apartment building, right? And they lived about 150 miles away from that building. So for a while, they you know, employed uh, El El Ebony Calhoun to collect rents, show apartments, and clean vacant apartments. And then they hired Augusta Partners Property Management LLC to rent, lease, and manage uh, that building with a contract with an effective date in January 2014. They also had two other rentals, one in Athens and one in Snellsville, Georgia. Those were held in their individual names, and they managed them on their own. Now, as I said, they each owned half of Magnet, LLC, Magnet Development LLC, which was a partnership. The partnership filed a Form 1065, Partnership Return of Income, for the years in issue. Uh, it reported income and claimed expense deductions in, on the Athens and Snellville properties on its Form 8825, Real Estate Income Expenses of Partnership Rest Corporation. The corporation also complained, depreciate, also, I should say, claim, not complain, but claim, depreciation deductions at 100% business use of a 2013 Ford Explorer that uh, Heather had purchased in May of 2013. And it reported net losses for both years in this case. So we're looking at two years of losses, right? Now, during these years, they were each, you know, basically, um, Edison was employed as a full-time technology support specialist with the Gwinnett County Public Schools. And Heather was a full-time computer specialist with the Huron Consulting Services, LLC. Um, so they, had, they each had full-time jobs. Now they're going to also say, in addition to each having full-time jobs, they're also saying, oh yeah, by the way, we were real estate professionals. Now, neither the employment with Gwinnett County Public Schools nor the employment with uh, Huron Consulting Services qualified as real estate activity time. And remember, as an employee, you can only count any hours you work, even if it's a real estate business, if you own at least 5%, and neither one of them, obviously, it's kind of tough to own 5% of Gwinnett County Public Schools. And, you know, certainly, and the wife, there's no nothing in the record that, that suggests that she was a owner in the consulting services LLC that she was a full-time computer specialist with. And secondly, neither one of them appeared to be in real estate anyway. So now we have one of the basic problems that we always run into here is if you have full-time jobs, is it possible to be a real estate pro? Possible, right? Unrelated full-time jobs, but insanely difficult. And you better have just absolutely pristine records that you can back up with third-party evidence for various parts of it. Because other, because you're going to be spending a lot of time. You start figuring out the number of hours in the year. You figure out the number of hours as a full-time employee that you basically have over 2,000 hours you would expect with your full-time employment. And now you got to get into the real estate pro hours of 750 uh, for that and be materially participating in the rentals involved. And remember, in this case, because it's husband and wife, while they can combine hours for purposes of determining if they materially participate in activity, they have to each separately qualify as a real estate pro. So at least one of them is going to have to be able to show that they work more than 750 hours in real estate, right? And this is where it gets tough. More than half of their hours for the year, 
were in real estate activities. So that means I need another 2,000 hours from one of them, 2,000, let's say, no, if they actually work, let's say exactly 2,000 hours full time for the year, I need them to show they had 2,001 hours in the real estate activities. If you start running the math on that, it's really, really difficult to make that work. And that's assuming they're not doing any overtime in these jobs. So they're only working the 2,000 hours. So nevertheless, the taxpayers, despite all of that, they had these losses they claimed as real estate pros. They were going to go ahead and take the losses on the real estate. But here's the other problem we have. Even though they did that, they did not make the election under 469C7A to combine all of their rental activities for the year. Now, why you'd like to do that is generally because if you do that, then if they're all one activity, remember, we want to materially participate. Just being a real estate pro is not enough. You have to show not just your real estate pro, but then that you materially participate in the rentals. Being a real estate pro only gets rid of the problem of having to show, you know, gets rid of the problem of the rental real estate just is always passive. We're going to take that off the table. You know, 469 C7 takes that off the table if you're real estate pro. But then that means you got the same problem you have with any other investment you've got showing that you truly materially participated, which is very difficult to do. Well, the IRS, not surprisingly, examined these taxpayers and not surprisingly, the IRS disallowed the losses. I'm sure going through the facts, nobody's terribly surprised that that would happen. But when we get to the case, we discovered that the court found all kinds of ways they had problems. And it's important to understand each one of them because people foul every one of these up. So let's start with the first issue we ran into. Let's deal with that car. Remember, remember Heather's car, Heather's Ford Explorer? Well, here's the problem with that. The first thing they, they noted was that Heather and Edison couldn't explain why the partnership should be entitled to deductions for property it did not own. This is something we see all the time, right? Taxpayer goes, buys a car at a car dealership, right? Well, they're told either by the dealer or by their insurance agent, oh, no, 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 we don't want to title that in the company name because your insurance is way higher if we have to get a business insurance policy. So they title it in their personal name. Now, while that's not fatal to the deduction, it does make it much tougher to make that work. And while the court didn't actually say anything else besides noting that they hadn't shown why they should be entitled to the deduction, um, bottom line, that by itself could do it. You, could, you can't claim a deduction. The entity can't claim a deduction for an expense that's not its expense. Now, maybe it would be Heather's, you know, on the personal 1040, but we'll, we'll ignore that for the moment because in reality, it's not going to matter. Now, the court then went on and said, okay, now this is travel expense. And because of that, this falls under the requirements under 274D for mandatory documentation because it's part of listed property. So any deduction related to listed property has got to have heightened substantiation requirements. That means contemporaneous records of the business use of the property. And the problem here is in the case and for the IRS, the taxpayers never presented that record. Okay. Now, like I said, 274D is very simple. You don't have that record of evidence. Um, essentially, 
since you failed to substantiate the cause, she failed to substantiate the cause of the vehicle. Didn't have evidence of that. Talking about missing things, when it was placed in service and the business use, and the fact it wasn't actually owned by the partnership. Uh, bottom line, they basically they the court said, okay, for all those reasons, absolutely none of the vehicle expenses could be allowed. Period. Now then, the court notes another little problem in play. Okay, remember those two rental properties other than the apartment building? They were in the name of Heather and Edison. Uh, that's a problem, right? They did not provide any evidence to show that uh, why the partnership was entitled to deduct those losses. Accordingly, they said they can't deduct them as flow-through losses from the partnership. Now, obviously, you might think, well, yeah, but they owned them individually, right? So, okay, wouldn't they be able to do that on 1040? Well, the court said they hadn't actually ever argued they could take it on Schedule E separately. And the court then throws in the obvious, even if they had, we got other problems with these deductions. So in any event, but not having things properly titled. So if you haven't caught it yet, the first two problems was people claiming things are in LLCs or partnerships that aren't really in them. Form matters here. Hate to say it, but the taxpayer doesn't win form over substance arguments when the taxpayer is trying to ignore the form they chose. They chose to have an LLC they claimed ran the business. That means you need to get everything titled in that name, not just ignore that as some of those things. Yeah, I don't need to do that. The guy on the internet on you know tax TikTok said, I didn't need to do this. It's like, no, I don't care what they say on TikTok uh, you know, or any place else you got your guidance from. Uh, you really need to get that stuff properly titled. It, you chose the form, you chose the LLC. Secondly, I think as an attorney would have said immediately, look at this was, and not having a title in that stuff means you kind of blew all the benefits of the asset protect of the, you know, liability protection anyway. So, you know, you're screwing up on this, but remember they save so much money, not paying for professional advice to attorneys and CPAs. You know, it was great, right? Just kind of did that. Well, now that's not the end of their troubles. So we have these losses flowing out of the LLC, right? And so far, at least we have the apartment building, right? The apartment building owned by the LLC, right? It had expenses and ignoring the travel costs, you know, the, the, the Ford Explorer. Well, that loss is coming out of the LLC, right? Yeah, but now we got the next problem. Under Section 704D of the Internal Revenue Code, uh, partner distributed share partnership loss shall be allowed only to the extent of the adjusted basis of the interest in the partnership at the end of the partnership year in which such loss has occurred. The taxpayers had no records to show the basis of their interest. They had founded this partnership back in 2007. They had no records from February 8, 2007, when they formed this thing, all the way through 2013, 2014, to show what their basis in their partnership interests were. If you cannot prove the basis, no deductions allowed. Right? 704D is going to, going to limit your losses to what you can show. Bottom line, you must have a basis calculation, supportable one that you can back up all the way back to 2000, all the way back to the day it was started, which in this case be 2007. You have to have that record to be able to claim the loss flowing through from the partnership. So now we're to the cases of things that essentially uh, just throw out the entire loss. So even if we didn't have the problem of the car being titled in her name, even if we didn't have the problem of the two of the buildings being titled in her name, 
we would still have lost the entire deduction because we couldn't prove basis. But it doesn't end there. Because in addition to having adequate basis to claim a loss, one must also show that you had adequate amounts remaining at risk in the, in the investment. And guess what? On 465A, uh, you know, taxpayers are entitled to losses from the real estate only to the extent of the aggregate amount with which they expect they're at risk for such activity at the close of the year. They failed to have any information to show they were at risk for any of the amounts in the partnership. They couldn't prove their at-risk amount. Again, if you cannot prove your at-risk amount under 465A, your deduction for the loss this year will be zero. So here's the second foul-up that denied everything on all the losses they were claiming on the return from the partnership. So we've killed it off twice. We partially killed the deductions off with not owning the truck and not owning two of the three rentals, but now we have two cases that got rid of all of it. But we're not done yet. Even if we didn't have the titling problem with the truck, we didn't have the, we didn't have the record-keeping problem with the truck either. Now, the titling problem with the two rentals, even if all of that was true and we had shown basis and at risk, we still are dead. Because there's another problem in this case that kills this one. That is the passive activity loss rules. Now, as you can remember, under 469, one can only deduct passive activity losses to the extent of passive income for a taxpayer. And as we may recall, remember, they did not elect to combine their rentals. And we'll get to that here shortly. But problem one is they need to be a qualified real estate professional. And in order to be that, we have to meet two requirements, right? So let's talk about the real estate professional requirements, which are going to fail. We have to show that more than one half of the personal services they performed in trades or businesses during a taxable year are performed in real property, trades or businesses in which the taxpayer materially participated. Okay, they're going to lose that one straight off. Because, I mean, it's virtually impossible as a full-time employee to be able to get another 2,000 hours. And because that seems wildly implausible, that you've got this second business with that, um, the court's going to require you to have very specific and detailed documentation of the total hours in your main, you know, in what you're, what you're employed at. So I need employment hour records that are detailed. And if you're not an hourly employee, that's going to be a little more fun to get. If you're hourly, in theory, we, we could maybe get that from the employer and we could accept it. Although, to be honest, in cases where that's been true, a few years ago, the U.S. Navy had the record of hours for the guy, and obviously the only problem was it was way in excess of the hours he spent on real estate. That proved to be a problem. So that's problem number one. And then number two, even if we have that, we've got to show that we had more than 70 hours of services during the year in real property trades or businesses. Now, here's where it gets funny. We need some records, right? And the records they had were... Uh, not, not the greatest here, and certainly they, they don't usually establish this, but according to their logs, which the court had real problems with anyway, right? But if we just accept them, they show 767 hours worked in 2013 and 407 hours worked in 2014. But problem number one was the logs didn't say which one of those two did it. Remember, we have to qualify one of them. So let's talk, let's start with the obvious. In 2014, I don't care if one of them did every hour, 407 hours is not 750. So they're dead there. Secondly, 
in 2013, okay, 767 hours. If only one of them did that work, that would get them over the 750. But again, they have a full-time job. And they've not submitted any records of how many hours. So first thing is, the court's not just going to assume that all went to one person. You've got to document it. But even if they assumed it all went to one person, it wouldn't do it. And finally, they, the court notes that the hours were inflated because including only hours performing activity related to real estate, but the hours they simply spent physically present at the properties, even if they weren't doing anything related to the real estate. So that, that's another big problem. So because of that, they weren't qualified real estate pros. But even if they were real estate pros, right, they, they, they've got this involved. Because you've got to still, even if they're real estate pros, the final thing you've got to do is show material participation. Now, as I said, this is complicated by the fact that they didn't elect to combine all the activities into one. Okay. And the problem is you need to meet, even if you're a real estate pro, as is noted in the opinion, you've got to meet one of the seven requirements found in temporary regulation 1.469-5TA. Now, you know, you can't conclude. So based on their logs, even if they had been a real estate pro, their logs didn't demonstrate that they performed more than 500 hours during the year and that they were not less participation of any other individual, right? All of those things in fact. So even if they, in fact, find that they met the 100-hour requirements involved in, let's say, because that's one of the ways in, you did 100 hours and nobody else did more because they had other people employed working with on, on these rentals, even if they accepted they had 100 hours, they had no information about the hours performed by the other parties they had hired. So bottom line, they couldn't show material participation. So let's see, how many ways were they killed? No basis records, no at-risk records, you know, not a real estate professional and couldn't show material participation. So there's four separate ways that there would have been a complete denial of the loss. And then on top of that, the fact they mistitled assets and didn't have records for the driving and didn't have other records, those also would clobber a substantial part of it, even if you have those last four problems. So if you want a case about how to screw things up badly and how to lose your deductions, uh, in this case, the Dunn case gives a really good example of all the ways things can go south. And in this case, yeah, they went south badly. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 5th, 2022. As always, this, this session is presented to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I also will be monitoring uh, the discussion groups, the Connect sites that are run by Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington. I take a look in those from time to time. I also keep an eye on the discussion board run by the Idaho Society of CPAs. So, you know, keep, keep your eyes open in those areas. And, you know, if you have any questions, post things there. They're mainly, they're very useful resources generally for kind of discussing things among your peers. And as I say, I do look in there from time to time. So if, you know, if I see something and think I might be able to help, I may chime in if you're there. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be another week. I've got one more trip left this week. So I've got one more time on a plane before I'm done. So that'll, you know, that, that's fun. Then I'm done for the holidays. And I think I've only got one trip scheduled in 2023 
to go to a firm to do a session. So things are relatively calm. We'll be doing sessions in Arizona and some remote sessions uh, until then. Maybe I think well, I may have one other trip too. I have to double check that one. So I may be out there a bit, but a little bit this year. We're still doing a lot of Zoom sessions, uh, doing a lot of webinars, shorter session times. So we've done things like that more. So we're still seeing that sort of thing. So we'll be around working that. Otherwise, though, uh, hopefully we'll be back next week, seeing what happens in taxes for the week. And uh, I'll be seeing you here, hopefully at that time, for more items on current federal tax developments.